You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 225, Stony Point. By the middle of 1779, the British had settled into New York and Newport, Rhode Island, without an expectation of any more major operations in the area. The only British offensive at the time was operating in the South, where the British in Savannah were making moves against South Carolina. The main British army in New York City by this time probably consisted of a majority of Hessian soldiers and loyalists. Most of the regulars had been sent off to other parts of the empire. I couldn't find a really good authoritative source to tell me exactly how many soldiers General Henry Clinton had in New York at this time, but my guess is around ten to 12,000 effectives. Meanwhile, George Washington also struggled to keep an army of a similar size just outside of New York City, in order to keep the British in check. The Continentals encamped primarily around the newly constructed defenses at West Point. Despite the fact that London had removed thousands of soldiers from New York, Secretary of State Lord Germain in London still encouraged General Clinton to take some offensive actions in the spring. Germain suggested that the British push into the Hudson Valley forcing the Continentals to retreat further inland. If the British could take control of more of New York State, they could get more delegates to send to a colonial legislature in New York and resume civilian control of the colony, once again under Crown authority. This was similar to what the British were already trying to do in Georgia. Germain suggested that, while they were at it, they could probably take at least part of New Jersey as well. Such an offensive would also force the Continentals to keep larger numbers of soldiers in New York to challenge the British Army. With more of the Continental Army in upstate New York, the British Navy could engage in coastal raids both in New England and the Chesapeake Bay area. At the same time, British forces in Quebec would continue to make use of Loyalists and Native Americans to harass the rebels in upstate New York. Now, the goal at this point was not to recapture those areas, but to harass American trade and make the people miserable enough that they would eventually call for a return to the king's peace. General Clinton's response to Lord Germain's instructions were basically trying the most polite and respectful way possible to say he was out of his freaking mind. In his responses to London, Clinton noted that he had far fewer soldiers than General Howe had had for the prior two years, when Howe was unable to take and hold New York State. The Continental Army also had far more soldiers in New Jersey than when General Howe last tried to maintain even a small hold within that state unsuccessfully. Maintaining control of a larger land area meant deploying garrisons of soldiers in forward areas 
where they would become sitting ducks to be picked off by continental raids. Anyone remember Trenton? Clinton informed Germain that he would try to maneuver his army in a way to get Washington to move out of his defenses. If he could do that, he would try to attack the Continental Column as it was on the march. This might give him a chance of victory. But otherwise, he simply did not have enough soldiers to push the Continentals out of areas that they held. Clinton did not seem optimistic that this would work, but he felt compelled to at least try something based on the encouragement that he had received from London. In order to dislodge the Continentals from their defensive position, the British had to do something provocative. Clinton put his focus on Stony Point, New York. About 35 miles north of British-held Manhattan Island, the Americans had built defensive forts to prevent another British incursion up the Hudson River. This was the southernmost point where the Hudson River was still reasonably narrow so that American guns could challenge any flotilla trying to move upstream. Stony Point was a high, rocky outcropping on the western shore of the river where American guns could threaten any ships. The Americans were building fortifications there, but aside from a blockhouse, did not really have much in place by the spring of 1779. They had a garrison of about 40 soldiers controlling the point, which stood about 150 feet above the river and was approachable only from the western side through swamps and other difficult terrain. On the eastern side of the river, at a place called Verplank's Point, the Americans had built Fort Lafayette. This fort, garrisoned by about 70 soldiers, was more complete with walls and artillery, but did not have the defensive height advantages of Stony Point across the river. In late May 1779, the British assembled a force of about 6,000 regulars, Hessians, and Loyalists. On May 30th, a fleet of 70 small sailing vessels and about 150 flat-bottom boats began moving upriver and arriving at the forts early on June 1st. Among those added to the force were the forces under General Matthews and Commodore Collier, who had just returned from the Chesapeake raid that I discussed back in episode 221. Also joining the force was General John Vaughn, who had traveled up the Hudson under Clinton two years earlier when the British sacked Forts Clinton and Montgomery. You can go back and listen to episode 164 for more details on that adventure. The small American garrison on Stony Point fled without a shot fired at the sight of a large British landing force. They burned the blockhouse and retreated before the British even arrived. The larger force at Fort Lafayette fired on the British, but after the British occupied Stony Point, they began firing down on Fort Lafayette, which was now in a vulnerable position. That, in addition to cannon fire from the ships and with General Vaughn's forces surrounding Fort Lafayette on the land side, Captain Thomas Armstrong surrendered the American garrison at the fort on the same day. Immediately, the British began building up the defenses on Stony Point in anticipation of an American counterattack. They mounted eight batteries of artillery, connected by trenches. Below the artillery, they erected a semicircle line of abatis, and below that was a series of three more reinforced defenses, also protected by a second line of abatis. 
The lines went from one swampy waterline to another, preventing any sort of effective flanking attack. The main approach came through the swampy land, which would also be difficult to assault and probably impossible to bring artillery. All of these works were protected by a brigade of over 600 regulars and loyalists, commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Henry Johnson. As further reinforcement, the armed sloop Vulture patrolled the river in the area of Stony Point. The British goal in capturing Stony Point was to force the Continentals to leave their other defenses and attack. By capturing Stony Point, just about 10 miles downriver from West Point, the British were poised to capture the main American defensive position on the Hudson River. A Clinton hoped that the Americans might panic at the seizure of Stony Point and muster their forces to counterattack quickly. The Continental leadership feared that the capture of Stony Point was only the first step toward taking West Point and then hitting the supply depots at Peekskill and others further upriver. Washington took some actions, but did not make any major redeployments as Clinton had hoped he would. After a few days, Clinton withdrew most of his army back to Manhattan. Once that happened, the continental fear of a British raid on West Point evaporated. The Americans could then turn their attention to retaking Stony Point. For the next month, the Continentals gathered intelligence about the British defenses. Washington sent Colonel Rufus Putnam, who had spent much of the war working on the Hudson River defenses, to inspect the British positions from a distance. He also deployed Major Henry Lighthorse Harry Lee and Major Thomas Posey for similar reconnaissance. Washington himself even personally spent a day examining the British defenses. Considering that review insufficient, Major Lee deployed one of his best scouts, Alan McLean, to get a closer inspection. Dressed as a civilian and under a flag of truce, Captain McLean accompanied a woman, Mrs. Smith, whose son was one of the Loyalists garrisoned at the fort. McLean was able to enter the fort and make mental notes about the defenses. According to McLean's own later account, while he was there, one of the British officers asked him what he thought about Washington possibly attempting to storm such defenses. McLean responded, quote, I am but a woodsman and can only use my rifle, but I guess the general would be likely to think a bit before he would run his head against such works as these. Trust me, we are not such dolts as to attempt impossibilities. In fact, though, McLean noted several weak points in the unfinished defensive works, which he later reported back to Major Lee. At the same time, Washington was having the defenses examined. He also issued orders to put together a brigade of Continentals to storm the fort. He selected General Anthony Wayne to lead this force. The Continentals had followed the British model of attaching one company of light infantry to each regiment. The light infantry was made up of soldiers from the rest of the regiment who tended to be more active members and who tended to serve better as scouts or skirmishers rather than simply standing in a line and firing. For some missions, the British had pulled light infantry companies together into a single unit for missions that required speed and less traditional field tactics. As we've seen in past episodes, this sometimes led to problems with companies working together without having much experience with each other. 
For Wayne's force, the Continentals used the same tactic of pooling their light infantry companies together. Wayne then spent several weeks drilling the companies together so that they would become familiar with each other. So essentially, these were hand-picked men who were specialized in fighting wilderness style. The four regimental commanders were all experienced combat veterans. Colonel Christian Febiger of Virginia had been a combat officer since Bunker Hill and had served as second-in-command with Colonel Daniel Morgan with the famous Morgan's Rangers before taking command of his own regiment. His second, Lieutenant Colonel Francis Fleury, was a French volunteer who had fought with distinction during the Philadelphia campaign and who we last heard from at the defense of Fort Mifflin. After that, he served under General von Steuben during the Monmouth campaign. Leading the second regiment was Lieutenant Colonel Richard Butler, a longtime Indian fighter who had grown up on the Pennsylvania frontier and had recently distinguished himself during the Saratoga campaign. Colonel Return Jonathan Meigs commanded the 3rd Regiment. He had served along with Colonel Febiger on Arnold's Wilderness March of 1775, and we last caught up with Meigs when he commanded a raid on Sag Harbor in 1777, back in episode 139. Major William Hull had led men during the New York, Saratoga, and Princeton campaigns, as well as Monmouth. He and Major Hardy Murphy led the 4th Regiment. Wayne gathered his men at Sandy Beach, a few miles upriver from Stony Point, on the morning of July 15th. From there, the men marched in a circuitous 13-mile march over mountains and through swamps, arriving at a point about a mile and a half from Stony Point around 8 p.m. It was only at this time that Wayne informed the men of their mission and gave orders for a surprise night attack. He divided the men into two columns. Each would be led by a group of axe-wielding men to cut through any blockages or defenses, including the abatis. Each column also had a volunteer force of one officer and 20 men, designated as the Forlorn Hope. These men were named such because they all expected to be killed in the battle. Their mission was to rush forward and engage the enemy in hand-to-hand -hand combat while the rest of the column made its way into position. Another smaller force under Major Hardy Murphy would open fire on the fort to draw attention of the enemy away from the main attack. To encourage a speedy and aggressive attack, General Wayne announced a reward of $500 for the first man over the wall, $400 for the second man, 300 for the third, 200 for the fourth, 100 for the fifth. He also issued orders that the men were to keep their muskets shouldered and unloaded during the march. Any early gunfire could alert the enemy to the surprise attack. This was reminiscent of the orders issued by Charles No Flint Gray when he ordered his British regulars to attack Wayne at the Paoli Massacre. Wayne also issued orders that any man who unshouldered his weapon prior to an officer's orders or who stepped out of line should be put to death immediately. Wayne was not going to lose the element of surprise due to soldier misconduct. At around 11.30 p.m., the Americans began their assault on the fort. General Wayne marched with the right flank of the column that would attack the fort from the south. Colonel Richard Butler led the left flank, assaulting from the north. Despite the effort at secrecy and a night attack, 
British pickets spotted the assault early and raised the alarm. The right column under Wayne had to wade through waist-deep water while taking fire. The axemen began hacking their way through the first row of Abatee, while the forlorn hope rushed the enemy lines, drawing away the attention of the defenders. As the men made their way to the second row of Abatee, still without returning fire, General Wayne took a shot to the head and fell to the ground. His men continued forward without him. As it turned out, the bullet only grazed Wayne's skull and left him momentarily stunned. He managed to revive himself and rejoin the assault. The left column made similar advances, hacking through the first and second rows of Abatee and making their way up the hill to the main fort. While the British and Loyalist defenders were laying down massive fire by this time, neither American column returned fire. Only Murphy's brigade in between the two columns returned any fire. This had its intended effect. Seeing the enemy fire from the center, British Colonel Johnson led six companies of regulars down the hill towards the enemy fire. This was nearly half of the defenders at Stony Point. As Johnson led his regulars down the hill, the two main columns of Continentals off to each side reached the main point of the fort at the top of the hill. Lieutenant Colonel Francois Fleury, a French officer with the Continental Army, was the first man over the wall and tore down the British flag. Hand-to-hand -hand combat inside the fort ensued as swords, bayonets, and other hand weapons came into use. The British defenders quickly threw down their weapons and begged for quarter. A few companies continued to fight to the death, but those were quickly overwhelmed. Colonel Johnson, who had led the British regulars down the hill, now realized that the main attack was behind him. He turned around his companies and began to charge back up the hill. By this time, General Wayne's column on the right flank was already in the fort, but the bulk of the left column was still outside the fort walls. The left column descended on Johnson's regulars. His men were overwhelmed, and Johnson found himself taken prisoner. The Continentals had planned to attack Fort Lafayette at the same time as the assault on Stony Point. General Robert Howe had been given that command. However, no such attack took place. Howe had received his orders late and then had difficulty making his way to the fort before the attack on Stony Point was complete. The Americans, having captured the British cannons at Stony Point, turned them on the British garrison at Fort Lafayette. Because Stony Point was on higher ground, they could fire directly into the lower fort. The British did not bother to return fire since the cannons were too distant to have any effect. Within a half hour of when the defenders first opened fire, the Americans had captured Stony Point and the battle was over. The British suffered heavy losses in the attack. 63 defenders, or nearly 10% of the force at Stony Point, were killed. Another 70 were injured and the remaining 543 captured. Of the American force of about 1,400 men, only 15 were killed and another 80 injured. Many of the casualties came from the two groups of Forlorn Hope. Lieutenant Gibbons, who led the Forlorn Hope on the right wing, reported that 17 of his 20 men were killed or wounded. The Americans widely celebrated the capture of Stony Point. Many saw the night raid as redemption for General Wayne, who had been the victim of a night raid at the Paoli Massacre. 
the Continental Congress ordered an honorary gold medal struck in honor of Wayne and two silver medals struck for Colonel Fleury and Major Lee, as well as 5,000 copper medals to celebrate the victory. General Washington visited the fort on July 17th. The Americans transported the prisoners to Pennsylvania and removed the captured cannons and other supplies from the fort. The Americans, however, realized that they could not hold the position that they had just taken. The British could just bring up thousands of soldiers as they had before and simply recapture the fort and any garrison inside of it. Stony Point was too isolated to maintain, and the Americans did not want to deploy the large force that would have been necessary to secure it. So on July 18th, the Continentals destroyed all of the defenses, leaving only bare rock and evacuated the position. As expected, the British mounted a large expedition to retake the point within days. They reoccupied the position and built even greater defenses and left an even larger garrison. The British saw the temporary loss of Stony Point as a failure of command. The commanding officer, Colonel Henry Johnson, endured an inquiry into his loss of the point after he was exchanged as a prisoner of war. He received a reprimand but continued in command. He would go on to fight at Yorktown and would eventually be promoted to general. The loss of Stony Point was about 5% of Clinton's total force around New York. He had been pleading for reinforcements for months, but had only received promises. Following Stony Point, Clinton gave up efforts to draw Washington into a larger general action that year. Clinton also sent an offer of resignation to London shortly after the event, requesting that General Cornwallis take command. London refused to accept his offer and ordered him to retain his command. He did finally receive a few hundred reinforcements, but the same fleet that brought those reinforcements also brought Camp Fever, which put about half his force into the hospital. So, while Stony Point turned out to be the only significant land offensive in the Northern Theater that year, the British were still interested in attacking the New England coast. And next week, we're going to cover just that as the British raid the Connecticut coast and burn the town of Fairfield. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week, and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active.
Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters and the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, and George Hunter. Thanks also to Robert Morris Circle supporter, Lee Seum. I mention my biggest supporters each week because they have made a real commitment to this podcast. They believe that telling this story is important and agree that I should make it freely available to all. As my costs have grown, they have stepped up to help me cover some of my costs, and for that, I am truly grateful. I know not everyone can be so generous as some of my biggest contributors, but I also really appreciate all of my Patreon subscribers who support this show for as little as $2 a month. With the growing number of supporters, these monthly contributions really help to make a difference in covering my costs. Since we're in the holiday season, I'll also mention that you can make a pledge in someone else's name as a gift. If you support it at the $10 or higher level, that person will receive a new flag magnet from the American Revolution each month. It's a great way to support this podcast and put another check in your holiday gift list. If you don't want to make an ongoing contribution, I'm also grateful for one-time gifts via PayPal or Venmo. Thanks to Brenda Richmond, who made another one-time gift last week via PayPal. Much appreciated, Brenda. I also want to mention that next week, the weekend of November 20th, I will be at Mount Vernon, Virginia, for the Congress of American Revolution Roundtables. The Roundtables hold regular events with speakers who are experts in all aspects of the American Revolution. One reason I'm attending this year is to talk about the website that I just designed for that organization. You can see the site at amrevrt.org. One of the main features of the site is to keep a list of all American Revolution events that are going on nationwide. Many of these events are still via Zoom, but there are also hopefully going to be some live events coming soon. If you want more American Revolution content in your life, check out that list at amrevrt.org. And don't worry, even though I will be away next weekend and the following week is Thanksgiving, I will have episodes ready for release each and every Sunday. I haven't missed a single week in the more than four years that I've produced this podcast, and I hope to keep my commitment to you to keep publishing every single week. This week we covered Stony Point, one of General Anthony Wayne's most famous moments. I also mentioned that much of the intelligence work for this campaign was done under the command of Major Light Horse Harry Lee, who had been pretty prominent as a cavalry officer earlier in the war and would go on to other things later in the war, but is probably best known as the father of Confederate General Robert E. Lee. The man who probably really deserves most of the credit for the action was Captain Alan McLean of Delaware. Lee and McLean actually had a falling out after the Battle of Stony Point because Lee took so much credit for the advance work that was done for the campaign. So Allen ended up taking a separate command in the Southern Campaign, where he served under General Lincoln and later under General Greene, and also more directly under General von Steuben. So Allen is a pretty interesting character, having served in many of the most critical campaigns of the war from his first actions in Virginia in 1775 through his critical work coordinating the American and French actions during the Yorktown campaign. After the war, McLean would become Delaware's first U.S. Marshal, 
and his son would actually have a prominent role in Andrew Jackson's administration. Someone else that I mentioned just in passing in this episode was Major Hardy Murphy, who led one of the regiments that attacked the fort at Stony Point. One fun fact about Murphy is that he moved west after the war and founded the town of Murfreesboro in what became Tennessee. That, of course, was the site of a major battle during the Civil War that helped secure much of Tennessee under Union control. My book recommendation this week is about the Battle of Stony Point. It's called Men Who Are Determined to Be Free, The American Assault on Stony Point, 15 July 1779, by David C. Bunk. This is a relatively short book, only a little over 100 pages. It focuses on the events leading up to the battle and the battle itself. The book was first published in 2018, so if you want to read more about the battle, get a copy of Men Who Are Determined to Be Free. If you want still more, there are several ebooks on archive.org that also cover the Battle of Stony Point pretty well. And one of them is my online recommendation this week. It is called The Storming of Stony Point on the Hudson, July 15, 1779, Its Importance in the Light of Unpublished Documents, by Henry Johnston. This book, first published in 1900, also describes events in just over 100 pages, but then goes on to include another more than 100 pages of primary source documents that are related to the battle. These documents include letters, orders, journal entries, etc. It's a great compilation of primary source information related to Stony Point. As always, you can search for Stony Point on archive.org or take a look at the bottom of my blog entry for this week's article to find a list of other good resources. And, of course, I've included direct links to both my book recommendation and my online recommendation on my website, amrevpodcast.com. My question this week asks, Did you know George Washington may have saved the Revolutionary War by vaccinating his army while at Valley Forge? Well, actually, I addressed this point in an earlier episode when I talked about disease in the Revolutionary War. The anti-smallpox effort during the Revolution was not called vaccination. That method was invented in the 1790s, well after the end of the Revolutionary War. Washington did, however, order the inoculation of Continental soldiers at Valley Forge. Earlier in the war, he had banned the practice. Inoculations made soldiers sick for weeks, sometimes months, and also made them contagious. So inoculations left his soldiers unfit for duty and also threatened to spread the disease even further throughout the army. On top of that, the inoculations killed 1-2% of those inoculated. However, after most of the Continental Army died from smallpox during the Quebec campaign, Washington had to rethink his policies. By the winter of 1777-78, when the army was at Valley Forge, Washington finally ordered the entire army to be inoculated. He also ordered that new recruits after that time also be inoculated before joining the rest of the Continental Army. This policy remained in place for the remainder of the war. The use of inoculation had been controversial because the cure, as I said, made men sick and even killed some of them. 
Many chose the risk of not getting the disease rather than risk the effects of inoculation. But because smallpox became so prevalent in the armies, Washington had to decide to balance the risk and decided that those risks favored inoculation. The British Army had also long implemented a policy of inoculating regular soldiers against smallpox. Civilians at this time, however, often rejected inoculation. Civilians did not come into contact with nearly as many people as soldiers did, and so the balance of risks was different for them. More than a decade after the war ended, in the 1790s, a British doctor by the name of Edward Jenner recognized that victims of the far less harmful disease cowpox also developed an immunity to smallpox. Jenner began inoculating people using the cowpox virus instead of the smallpox virus, and this eliminated the chance of death or spreading the disease of smallpox and also had much fewer side effects. For his cowpox method, Jenner used the term vaccinus, which is Latin for from the cow, to describe his new and safer treatment to prevent smallpox. And that is actually where we get the term vaccine. Once this safe vaccine became well-known in the early 1800s, its widespread use eventually managed to wipe out smallpox entirely. If you have a question that you would like me to answer, please email me or reach out to me on social media. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. Si eras de los que tenían todos los álbumes familiares en la sala o de los que guardaban toda la música en CDs, eras un genio y no lo sabías. Con Lenovo lleva tu ingenio a otro nivel, porque con nuestra familia de computadores IdeaPad, todos tus archivos multimedia tienen el rendimiento y potencia que necesitas. Encuéntranos en los principales almacenes de cadena del país. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.